First John chapter 3, verses 16 uh, through 18 is where we'll be um, this morning. Um, before I moved to Greenville, uh, I actually lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I worked as a, a rep for um, Home Depot stores. It was a company called Crown Bolt. And I would go in, I would stock nuts and bolts for Home Depot stores. And uh, as I was working that job, I actually, one of my, I met a guy who ended up becoming uh, one of my closer friends in Atlanta. Uh, and he was from Nigeria. And he had moved to Atlanta from Nigeria just a few years prior to me, me meeting him. And we would get into interesting conversations. We often talked about cultural differences, American culture versus Nigerian culture. Uh, in fact, just, just for him to prove to my wife and I that um, they were trying to embrace American culture, they said, uh, hey, we know you're not going um, uh, to North Carolina for Thanksgiving this year because of work, so why don't you have Thanksgiving with us? And we're going to attempt, as Nigerians, to make an American Thanksgiving um, and so that we can get used to the culture. And so at this point, Jess was pregnant. Uh, we went over to their house, and um, it was not what I thought it was going to be. Let me just say that. Um, they said, you know, I know you Americans love catfish chowder uh, for Thanksgiving. And I was like, we do. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was like this someone had put two catfish in a blender, blended it, and then put it in the microwave. Um, that's, that's literally what it, it, it came out. And I was like, oh. And, you know, Jess was pregnant. So I was like, there's no way you're eating this. And she, when they walked away, and it was just Jess and I, she goes, you can have to take one for the team. And so I, uh, I took two for the team. I ate two bowls of that stuff holding my nose. And, you know, like... Um, and so, but we left and um, they tried, it was, a, it was a dry turkey. We smiled through it and we made our way through that thing and we stopped at Bojangles on the way home. Um, but that was them trying to engage our culture. And so he was really making an effort uh, to get to know our culture. And so I was getting to know his culture by asking him questions and asking him, you know, what was it like growing up in Nigeria? And he, you know, he was chased by a lion one time. I've never experienced that, obviously. And so just different different cultural experiences. And so one of the ways that I would use that is to try to infuse the gospel into conversation. So I would begin to try to share who Christ is and what Christ, and he would, he would always kind of go, yeah, yeah, I know all Americans believe in Jesus. And it was really hard for me to say, no, 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 they don't all believe in Jesus. In fact, most of them don't believe in Jesus. And the reason why I believe in Jesus is because he's made a change in my heart. And so it was very hard for me to explain to him as a Nigerian that America, uh, Christianity is not really a national religion. It's not everyone believes it because they're Americans. Or if you're, you're American, therefore you're a Christian. It was really hard for me to, to walk through that with him. And so uh, one of the questions that he did have for me that was very interesting as I was trying to explain to them, there's a difference between uh, Americans and Christianity. And there's a difference between American Christianity and authentic Christianity. Um, one of the questions he would have for me was really interesting. He said... If American Christianity is, is different than real Christianity, is what you're saying, why then do Christians in America have the same views as money as the rest of America? Do they handle money and they see money the same way? And that was a really hard question because his understanding, by the way, of Christianity was based on his experience to, uh, in Nigeria, which we, America, sent Christians, quote-unquote Christians, to Nigeria to spread the gospel. But it was not the gospel. It was 
the prosperity gospel. It was the gospel of God's desire for you and for everyone is to be healthy and wealthy. And that's the chief end goal of your life. If God can get you the most money and God can get you the healthiest, then, and if you're not one of those two things because you don't have faith. That was his understanding of Christianity growing up in Nigeria. Then it didn't help that he came to Atlanta where there's a ton of prosperity gospel churches in Atlanta where he heard the same thing. And so his understanding of Christianity was seen through that lens. But then as I even walked through just regular Christianity, how is it exactly that Christianity, that believers in Jesus Christ, those who have repented of their sins and believe in the gospel, how is it that we see money differently than the way that our culture sees money. Because his understanding was, we give so that we would get more. We give so that God would bless us more. So, that, so the goal then is not we give because we love Jesus or the gospel's enough for us and he fully satisfies us. No, it was his understanding of us was we give so that we would get more back. And so my question is, why do we give? Why should we give? Uh, Do we give so that we would get more? Are we expecting God to give us tenfold back? Or do we give because of a law that requires us to do it, that says 10% of your income, so it's this law that does it? Or do we give out of a different motivation as believers in Christ? And so my goal today is to show you that there is a greater purpose in Giving, And I'm not talking about just financial. I'm just talking about just generosity in general. How do we have a motivation to be generous people? What is it that motivates us? And interestingly enough, First John chapter 3, John begins to talk about what should motivate us if we're believers. He talks about this idea of love. He says everything goes back to this idea of of love. And he says your love is going to be so radical that even the world, when they look at you, they're going to hate you. That's how radical your love is going to be. And so a believer is going to be marked by this radical love and radical generosity. And that's how the world will see us. They'll believe that we are different in the way that our culture is going in the way that we view everything. And so John, he talks about this issue in First John chapter 3, verse 14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So he talks about loving the brothers. He's saying brothers or sisters. He's talking about believers in Christ. He says, We know that those who have been passed from death to life Because they will then in turn respond to that through love and generosity for others. We'll even see an example uh, of being passed from death to life in a moment when we go outside and we see these two young ladies get baptized. We're seeing uh, a symbol and a picture of them coming up out of the water. And that's a representation of them being a dead person to Christ making them alive. It's a symbol of that. But what's another sign of that? It's not just being baptized. It's not just some action that you do. No, you're going to show and display love and generosity if you've truly passed from death to life. And then what John's going to say, we're going to love the brothers, and then he's going to explain to us how we're going to love each other, how we're going to love brothers and sisters in Christ. And here it is in verse 16 of 1 John chapter 3. He says, by this, we know love. 
So we have the definition of what love is, and he's going to tell you what it is. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he says, um, we know love because of what Christ has done for us. Remember what Jesus says in John's gospel. Uh, There's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. We have the ultimate example of love. And this is 1 John 3, 16. Now, most of us know First, most of us know John 3.16, the gospel of John. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most of us have seen uh, John 3.16, even if you've not grown up in church, even if you've never been to church in your life, you've probably been to a basketball game or a football game where it's in the end zone, right as somebody's kicking a field goal, you see the sign waving up, John 3.16. It's God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Wonderful, wonderful passage. But most of us don't know John 3, 1 John 3.16. Most of us know John 3.16, but most of us don't know 1 John 3.16. Now, interestingly enough, 1 John 3.16 is him just saying, you know John 3.16 because of the way that you're acting. 1 John 3.16 is a response to John 3.16. If you know, if you believe that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place so that we would have eternal life. You also are going to know love. And you're also going to want to love others. And he says, and that type of love that you're going to have for others is going to be that you ought to, is what John says in 1 John 3, 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers And so what does it mean when we say, lay down your life for the brothers? What does it mean for us to lay down our lives for the people in this room? What does that mean? Well, I've talked about this before, um, but here at Integrity, I do a lot of weddings. I'm doing, I think, five weddings between now and August. And so there's a lot of people getting married. Hopefully, we'll have some babies coming out of that soon, right? A couple of years from now, maybe a year from now, see some babies in the nursery because of this. And our church will grow, not just by people getting saved, but people procreating. Um, But that's one of our goals. Um, Just kidding. But what I do is when I meet with couples, I I share with them about marriage. And I go through, uh, I I have a thing where I go through the Song of Solomon. And then I have a thing where I go through uh, biblical roles. And when I'm going through biblical roles, I look at the husband and I say, listen, Your goal, and I quote Ephesians 5, your goal is to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And Paul says that you're willing to lay down your life for your wife. Now, most guys at that point get all like macho and puffed up. Like, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I'm I'm willing to take a bullet for you, baby. Right? (laughs) Right? If I'm at the store, convenience store, and some guy tries to rob you, I'm, no, I'm jack him up. You're messing my wife. It's like, oh, oh, a car is going to hit you? I'm going to run out in front of that car. I'll let the car hit me. I'm going to die for you. And it's this sort of heroic like, picture where it's like this puffed up thing where he gets the attention. But listen, if he's not willing to do that, he's a jerk anyway. Right? He should be willing to do that. Not, that. That's not what the gospel just calls you to. That's what human being, that, that's like you being a person. Like, if you, don't, if you can't do that, you shouldn't be married, right? So when he talks about 
um, dying to yourself. He's not talking about just putting an expiration date on your life. When he talks about dying to yourself, he's saying you, you literally lose yourself for your bride. You, you literally, as, as 1 John 3 would say, you will literally lose yourself for other believers in Christ. Meaning, it's not just your physical life, but it's also your time. It's also your resources, the things that God has given you. It's also your home, your hospitality. It's also your money. You're willing to lose yourself for the brothers and Christ. And so we do this out of response to the gospel. 1 John 3, 16, I'll read it again. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See the difference? It's not a, here's a percentage of time that I want you to dedicate to loving others. It's not a, here's the law and this is what the law requires. No, it's law of Christ. Because your life has been changed by the gospel, you respond out of that with gratitude and thanksgiving, therefore, and a transformed life, therefore, you lay your life down for others. You lose yourself for others. Very different motivation and response. It's what Christ does in us if we believe. So if we believe in John 3.16 will live like 1 John 3.16. And he continues, 1 John 3.17, he says this, but if anyone has the, notice what he says, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? Paul echoes the same concept in Galatians 6, verse 10. He says, so as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. And what John and what Paul and what the New Testament echoes, and what we even talked about this last week, is the love that we should have for one another should eventually spill over into the world to where the world sees the gospel. They see love and generosity happening, happening among one another. And then it just flows into how you live, how you work, and how you play in every facet of your life. And we do this as believers because we want to advance the kingdom of God. And that's why we do it among one another, so that we can advance the kingdom of God. We take our resources and we share them with each other so that Christ would be glorified. And practically speaking, I mean, it's, it's amazing. We, we planned this series out and we didn't even think that this, these verses would land on the same date as the $100 campaign. And talk about the sovereignty of God. Maybe God's trying to say something to us this morning, Right? And so you have the $100 campaign that lines up right with it. Because why would we do the $100 campaign? For this reason. Because Christ died for us. So we want to be generous to other people. We see someone in Belarus who's trying to share the gospel with an unreached people. We want to say, man, they're living off $600 a month. We, we, we have to be generous to them. Because look at what Christ did for us. 
And we want to plant a gospel-centered church in Wilmington, North Carolina, one of the fastest-growing areas in North Carolina, desperate need for gospel-centered, uh, gospel centrality. What we do, we just say, we're not going to say, well, we want to build our kingdom here. It's really about how big we can get as a church. No, it's about how many people we can send. It's about how many resources we can send. And I think we have to stop gauging health, by the way, on how big the church is. It's not our seating capacity. It's our sending capacity. What are we sending out? How are we displaying love and generosity for others? Who are our best and brightest that we can send out to help Help Chris start this gospel-centered church in Wilmington. What, what kind of money do we have? What kind of resources do we have that we can share so that the gospel could be, so that Christ would be glorified and the gospel would continue? That's a different motivation. And we do this because we love the brothers. And then John is going to say it so clearly. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How can he even say that he loves God? How can he even say that he believes in John 3.16? How can he even say that Christ died on the cross for his sins? And so God has sovereignly called out those who would believe. Therefore, God has sovereignly sent his son to die for those that would believe. And therefore, God would raise up a church that would be faithful to proclaim the gospel and go out and find that those that the Lord is working on and share the gospel with them. The Lord has has raised up people who would pray fervently that people would come to know Christ and repent and believe the gospel. He's sovereignly done that. And not only that, but he's sovereignly resourced the church, not just the organization, but the individuals in the church so that we would then do the same thing. We would use what he's given us so that the gospel would be furthered. And that's the motivation. That's the vision. That's the why. I think about it this way. There's really two ways, two reasons why you have the resources that you have. First of all, the first reason is so that you might see him as good. And I think about it this way. When my boys ask me when we go to Burberry Yogurt or one of the many frozen yogurt places in Greenville, They asked me, Dad, why does this taste good? Um, Because we just got 87 different flavors to choose from, from birthday cake, and then we can go through a line of just, it looks like, you know, drugs um, lined up, gummy bears, broken Oreos, gummy worms, sprinkles, you can put them all on top, and then you have whipped cream on the top, and then hot fudge on top of that. And then my son, I give it to him, he says, why is this good? Because God is good. And when you taste that, and when that explosion of flavors, and that mixed variety that God has put together before the foundation of the world, so when you infuse those things together, it explodes in your mouth, and when that explosion happens in your mouth, you were to say, man, we have a great creator. You're not to to worship that thing. You're not to say, oh, I love ice cream. I love ice cream, even though we say that. What we should do, turn that into what a wonderful creator that we have to give me this good and wonderful gift out of his common grace so that I would in turn see this as good, therefore seeing him as good. That's Romans 1. 
How, how do we see a, a person that God is working on? How do we see if they're rejecting God? Well, they reject him because they love creator, creation over the creator. But he's like, no, I've given you things so that I w- you would see them as good. You would love your creator, not the created thing. So he's given you things so that you would in turn see him as good. That's the first reason. The second reason why he's given you things is so that you might take what he has given you to further the gospel. It's not to be built, it's not for you to build your kingdom. It's for you to use what he's given you and through his work in your life, you might help build his kingdom. Different perspective altogether. When I think about generosity, I think about 2 Corinthians 8, um, one of my most challenging places in scripture when you think about generosity. And, and when I read 2 Corinthians 8, um, the Holy Spirit always convicts me of just why I do what I do, why I have what I have. Because what you have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is, is Paul is talking to a church who's already generous. Corinth was already a generous church. And he begins to tell them and really brag about this church in Macedonia who is suffering Tremendously, they're, they're going without food. They're, they're sleeping at night, not even knowing we're going to sleep the next night. They're incredibly impoverished. Their children don't have food. Their children's lives are in danger. And Paul says, I'm going to check your motive here, Church of Corinth, and I'm going to show you this, tell you this wonderful story of what God is doing in Macedonia. And he does this in 2 Corinthians 8. Start with me, if you will, in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, believers in Corinth, he says, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. So it's not a Percentage, he says, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for favor of taking part in relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now, what is Paul saying? Well, these believers in Macedonia They understood the weight of the gospel. They committed themselves first to the Lord. And what was the response? It overflowed into generosity. So much to where in their affliction and in their poverty they gave. That kills the idea. I'll give more when I get more. And that's backwards thinking most of the time. By the way, uh, history has shown that if you get more, you'll actually give less. And that's actually what's happening here. It's the the opposite. This is the way way Christianity should really work. Even in our poverty. Because it's not a what fits the budget question. It's actually a I cherish the gospel this much. And I give out a response to that and the change that he's made in our lives. And this is what's happening. Even in their poverty, even in their affliction, even that they know their lives are threatened. And and it's even interesting the way that Paul words it. He says, they're begging us so that they would give more. He says, we weren't expecting that. But you know why they did it? He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. It's a response to the gospel. See, this is what 
the gospel does. It causes us, in us, radical generosity. And so, what John is doing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, is he's begging the question of why wouldn't you want to bless others? Why wouldn't you bless others? And I think at some point, at some level, we have to ask ourselves this question. If we were really, really going to be a part of a, a community of faith, a, a church of believers in Christ, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we want to be a blessing to others or do we, are we okay with being a burden? And I ask that question because all of us start at the same point. We all start with a burden for Christ. We all start with a need for a savior. We're dead in our sins. We've made alive in Christ. And then when we become believers, we have some needs. We need people to walk through the gospel with us. We need people to share the gospel with us and be faithful to us, to scripture, and teach us how to read the Bible, teach us how to be men, teach us how to be women, teach us how to be married couples. We have to be discipled. But we don't just stay there in immaturity. We grow and mature so that we would love God more and so that we would learn how to bless others. But we don't stay in, in burden land, all right? We don't stay of, I want, I want to keep getting from people and keep taking from people and just stay in that world. No, we, we grow in the, in the sense of, okay, I've been resourced knowledge, biblical knowledge to be able to share. I've been resourced financial means so that I would be given, so, I, so it would be given to me so I would be able to share so that others would see the gospel more beautifully and more profound and this is what the gospel should do in our lives and so the question must be asked am i a blessing or am i a burden i see people who've been discipled for a long time and they never turn that into discipling others i see people who walk in every Sunday and they see people serve and people are serving them. They're getting their coffee for them. They're walking them in the door. They're watching their kids for them. And then that never translates to, I should do this for others. And he's saying, look, the gospel should stir that in you, a desire that you would, that would turn into how can you take what you've been giving to give to others. And this is what service is. It's a motivation out of the gospel. And so John begs the question, how can you do that if God's love has given you so much and you're so much in Christ? And so we are not going to be a body of Christ where you just come and you just want to get things from. The gospel is not to get you things. The gospel is what you get and it's enough. And so we live in response to the gospel. And this is why we give ourselves away. This is why we do it to reflect the gospel and the others might see it clearly. And what John is going to press next is kind of the most painful part of this. And First John three eighteen, he's going to say literally, the way that you show that is to show and display the depth of your faith. Verse eighteen, he says this in First John three eighteen. Um, I'm in James. Okay, good. First John three eighteen. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See what he's saying? Talk is cheap. Lingo is cheap. God is not interested in your lingo. 
And this is where we even need to be careful because in our lingo, we find ways that we can fit in based on our lingo. We, our church here at Integrity, we value scripture very much. And so sometimes we can confuse spiritual growth with spiritual lingo. Oh, they're saying the right things about God. That means they get it. No. John is going to actually echo what James says in James chapter 2, verse 14. James talks about the same thing that John's saying. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warned to be filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Great reformer Martin Luther, who came out of Roman Catholicism, became a believer, he heard this passage and he said, it's the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He wanted to rip James out of the Bible because of this. But can I just say that maybe Luther didn't get it? I feel weird saying that. Like, can I just say that Luther's wrong on that? Because what, what James is saying is exactly what First John is saying. If you get the gospel and you, and you say you get the gospel, it's going to, you're going to produce good works and obedience to God and love and sacrifice to others because you get the gospel. It's a response to the gospel. And it's actually an outflow of a new heart changed by the gospel. Good works will follow. Talk is cheap. I remember when I went to uh, upstate New York, uh, school there um, for one year as a Bible Institute, uh, right out of high school, went there, and um, I'm from North Carolina, and most of my roommates are from New York and New Jersey and Vermont and all over the, like, the New England area, and, which means my name changed from Ben to Ben, and immediately, so I had a new name, Ben. And, uh, and so I was trying to fit in with guys, and they, they like snowboard up there. Like, and they think what I do is milk cows, and I live on a, you know, a farm, and like, that's what I do because I'm from North Carolina. And, of course, I made fun of how terrible their basketball teams are, and then we, we win the argument. So anyway, um, but, I, um, but to fit in, they said, you know, Ben, we're going snowboarding tomorrow. You know, it's like, and they invite me to go snowboarding with them, and I'm like, do you snowboard? And I'm like... Yes, snowboard. Of course. Love the boarding of snow. And it's like, you know, no idea what I'm talking about. And, uh, and so they say, well, we're going snowboarding tomorrow. I'm going to drive up to Vermont. We're going to go. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm down. And so I said, okay, it can't be that hard, right? Go back to my dorm. can't be that hard. So I find a book on snowboarding. And I read about, you know, I don't even know. I'm just going to make up phrases that sound like snowboarding, but double axle. I'm like, yeah, I know what that is. And I like reading all these different, and I'm looking at diagrams. I can do that. Just stand up straight, bend my knees at the right time. It's going to be fine. And so I get out there, and I'm saying all the snowboard lingo. lingo. You, go to, you know guys don't do a 50-50 turn? You guys know how to do a 50 rodeo or some, you know, I'm like making up all this stuff that I read the night before. But what proved that I didn't know what I was talking about? When I got up on the slopes... When I didn't get up on the slopes, I, I mean, I, I fell down the slopes multiple times. Ben, what are you doing? You know, like, that, that, I heard that. Stand up. No, oh, okay, I was planning on just rolling down the whole time. That's why I'm doing this, you know? But what proved 
whether or not I snowboard. Was it the lingo or was it the actual me trying to snowboard? Me trying to snowboard. And it's the same thing. He's saying faith without works is dead. If you just say that you love, you just give lip service to God, it's meaningless. But when your life begins to reflect what Jesus did for you, that's how we know that you believe. You're willing to lay down your lives for others. You're willing to lose yourselves for others because that's what Christ did for you. And that's how we know that you believe. And then James says it in James chapter 2. What good is it if you have faith that does not produce works? He says you've, you've gained a lame hobby. You gain nothing from it. It is an empty faith. It is not real. It is dead. And so John is saying the same thing. You can't just love God with your words. It will always, if, if, if Christ has genuinely made a change in your heart, you will produce good works. It's kind of like me and Jess. If I just told Jess, I love my wife and I, I speak to her kindly, but I treat her horribly. I never serve her, never pick up anything around the house, never help her with the kids, never thank her for, for the meal. I just, I, but I say, but you're beautiful. You would say, I have an unhealthy marriage, right? Hopefully, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> She's married, she gets it. Um, you would say, I have an unhealthy marriage. She's saying that to her husband, which you know. Um, <laughs> But it's like the South. We do the same thing. Like, before we gossip about somebody and we say horrible things to them and treat them horribly, we say, but, but bless their heart. Like, we say the nice thing. Or how many times have you been in a situation where somebody's gossiping about somebody that you don't like? But he's a nice guy. Oh, so you said that one nice thing so you can say everything else horribly and treat them badly at a response. Faith without works is dead. If we say that we love God, our actions will show it. If we say that we love God, our actions will show it even how we love other people. So this is John's reasoning here in the whole book of 1 John. He starts it off with what he saw in Christ. And he's going to argue there is no relationship with Jesus that doesn't lead to life change. And then he's going to argue there is no life change that doesn't lead to greater love for others. And then he's going to argue, if you don't love others, then your life hasn't been changed. And if your life hasn't been changed, then you've never met Jesus. That's John. That's what he's saying. So look around you. Do you love these people? Are you going to become more of a burden or a blessing? Do you see the body of Christ as what you can take from it or how you can bless others? And when you leave... The Hilton, after our baptism, we leave the Hilton. You walk out in the park club and you get into your car. If you're not compelled to show love and generosity to others and share the gospel with them, my question is perhaps maybe you've never met Christ. Maybe your life has not genuinely been changed. But if your life has been changed, my prayer is that you would grow and mature, not just of your knowledge of scripture, but in action and generosity to others. Because that's what the gospel is. It changes us and it compels us to lose ourselves, to lay down our lives for our brothers and for the rest of the world. God, help us. Let's pray. Father, help us as we practically think through ways to be generous. Help us to do that well. Help us to do that this morning as we...
think through the $100 campaign. How do we generous to two wonderful ministry opportunities? Help us to do that well today. Help us to do that throughout this week as we even can give online and some of those things. Help us to do that well. Help us to be a generous people. Lord, not to build our kingdom, but through your work in our lives, we can build yours for the furtherance of the gospel and for your glory. And Lord, for those in this room who've never experienced that generosity that only comes from you, they've never been brought from, from death to life, Lord, would you, by your spirit, save them? Would you open their eyes to the gospel They would repent and believe that you were born of a virgin, you lived a perfect, sinless life, you died on the cross, you rose from the grave, and you conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and death, and our hope and our joy is found only in you. Lord, help those who've never done that to repent and believe the gospel. And for those of us who have, Lord, help us to display radical generosity in our lives by your spirit, by your spirit's work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.